So the 17th century Bible commentator Matthew Poole, remarking on this text, wrote this. Moses summed up all in the Ten Commandments, to which, truly interpreted, all the precepts of Scripture are reducible. And Christ here brings the ten to two. And what are those two? You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor. And look what Jesus says about these two commandments in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all, you see that word? All the law and the prophets. Now, that sounds kind of important, doesn't it? Listen to it again. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. The word depend here means to hang. And it's translated as such in a few versions. For example, the Legacy Standard Bible translates this verse to read like this. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. The meaning is this. The entirety of the law. Notice the capital L. You see that in the text there? In verse 40. Notice the capital L. Referring to the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy can all be summed up, Jesus says, by these two commands. Along with the prophets. Again, note the capital P. Meaning all of the prophetic writings, both the major prophets and like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, along with the minor prophets. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Amos, Obadiah, and the rest. All of these also hang on these two commandments to love God and love neighbor. They hang like a coat hangs on a peg. They hang like a picture that is held up on the wall by the support of a screw or a nail. These two commandments hold up. They buttress the law and the prophets, meaning the entirety of the law and the prophets are all incorporated into these two commands. Every single one of the 613 laws in the Old Testament are in some way included in and supported by these two commands, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So central are these two commands to all who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all-encompassing <coughs> are they that the great 4th century bishop, the single most influential theologian in the Western church up until Martin Luther, a man named Augustine, wrote about them this phrase, love God and do as you will. Love God and do as you will. Now, that sounds a little dangerous, doesn't it? What he means is that if you actually do love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind, then the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, the entirety of your life, your aims, your goals, your thoughts, your hopes, your deeds, your actions, your dispositions, your viewpoints, your opinions, and all of the rest, because they are so centered on, because they are so fixated on, an unhindered, pure, and unmixed, devoted, totally devoted love for God. This aim in the direction of doing that which pleases our pinnacle love, the Lord, in every single circumstance in life will dominate us 
so much that we'll never break the law. It is therefore extremely important that we understand exactly what is meant by the word love then in this context, right? Because as we read the Apostle Paul say more than once in the New Testament, love is the fulfillment of the law. Another dangerous statement. In Romans 13, verse 10, for example, Paul writes this, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And again, in his letter to the Galatian church, Paul wrote this, The whole law is fulfilled in this one word. Word there means this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, let me ask the question, does this sound important? But as it is with pretty much everything in the Bible, the world that we find ourselves sojourning through as exiles, the world that we find ourselves walking through as lights pointing people to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the world has co-opted this word love and redefined this most precious and wonderful biblical concept. When you think of the word love, what comes to mind? Because you know there is something about love that drives the world, right? Love, at least in the world's definition, is the center of so or the central theme of so many movies, the ones that men especially love, right? <laughs> Just kidding, I don't like those movies. <clears throat> How many songs have at their core love? How many poems are written because of love? How many books have as their central theme <clears throat> at least the world sorry that was loud sorry at least the world's definition of love love has led to wars whether real wars or mythological tales like that of Helen of Troy remember her the face the beautiful face that launched a thousand ships she was said to be the most beautiful woman woman on earth betrothed to king menelaus of sparta and on the night of her wedding, secretly eloped with the love of her life, Paris, the prince of Troy, and escaped with him to the city of Troy. And Menelaus' response was to launch a thousand ships and begin a ten-year siege of Troy, where famed warriors like Hector and Achilles battled until eventually the Spartans breached Troy by way of the Trojan horse. We all heard of this story, right? It all comes from this misplaced love. Menelaus ransacked the city, massacred everyone in it, retook Helen, sailed back to Sparta with her in tow. It's a story of love. And if it's not love for women, if you're a man, it's love for money and power that have undergirded and brought about almost every war known to humankind. Because there is something about love that resonates with us so deeply, that affects us so profoundly, it's almost as if we were created by God to both receive and express love as a primary purpose in life, isn't it? Sounds important, doesn't it? So what is this love spoken of by the Lord through Moses in the law and now by Christ in the flesh? Is it what the world we live in holds out to us in the name of love? 
I mean, you have heard just as much as I've heard the numerous and varied definitions of love given to us by the world, right? I've heard people express, say love is strong emotions and tender affections for somebody else. I've heard people use the phrase making love to define physical sexual activity. Even when in so many cases that activity has nothing to do with love and everything to do with lust and fleshly passion. Have you noticed in our culture that almost anything can be justified or eliminated by appealing to this word love? That's not loving. When you hear that, doesn't it put you on the back foot? You shouldn't do that. That's not loving. Oh, 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 oh. I'm not going to do that then. Or the opposite. That is loving tends to draw us towards the practice of such a thing. When you rebuke a brother for sin, and somebody says, well, that's not loving, your tone wasn't loving, your action wasn't loving, it wasn't loving to bring that, what's our response? To stop rebuking each other for sin, right? Even though that is the pathway to our greatest joy, which we'll get to. We can so, it, Appeals to love are used in order to, help, to bring us to the place where we're actually supporting the sinful conduct of other people. Appealing to love is a powerful force in our day. Love has been spoken of in mushy, indefinable, sentimental terms. Love, as practiced by the world in many cases, is patently selfish. Have you noticed? Have you noticed that love tends to be something a person must make me feel if a relationship with that person is going to continue? And then when that love is gone or that feeling is gone, I'm perfectly within my rights to end that relationship. Is that love? <coughs> love, in many ways, depends on what a person does for me. Think about your relationships in life. How many of your relationships actually provide you with something and that's why you and I maintain them? How many of your relationships are, are, do you have with people who provide absolutely no benefit to you in any way? They don't make you laugh. They don't provide you with some service. They don't make you feel good when you're around them. How many of those relationships do we maintain? Is that love? I think the best earthly illustration of love, the one that most reflects God's love to us, is the relationship between parent and child. Think about it for a second. If you're a parent, your kids, and I say this in the nicest possible way as a father of three, they freeload. They leave your lights on in the house all over the place. They eat your food. And then they talk back to you. And yet we love them. They don't provide anything for us. We love them simply because we love them. As a parent, you want the best for your kids in an unmixed sort of way, right? In a pure way, you want what is best. You don't try to take from your kids. You try to give to your kids. That's what a parent is to do because that's what God does for us. I tell my children that all the time. Know this, I say to my kids, I love you simply because I love you. 
And in this world, you're going to have people who say they love you, but in the end, they're trying to take something from you. I don't want to take anything from you. I want to give you everything. That, I think, is the closest model to the love that is expressed for us by God in Scripture, the true definition of love. One of my favorite texts in Scripture, one that ought to be highlighted, starred, tabbed, and repeatedly turned to in your Bibles, and if it isn't, please do so right now, is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. There we read of God's love for us in Christ. Listen to it. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What did you offer God? What did I offer to God? While we were still weak, meaning while we were helpless, and not just helpless, but utterly helpless, hopeless, powerless, lacking moral strength, lacking courage, lacking will, lacking love for God. While we languished under sin, which Paul tells us in Romans 3, leads to this withering description to everyone, both Jew and Greek, meaning to every single one of us. Listen, these words apply to you and I. This is what we were, this is what we are, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see that? While we were weak, while we were under the power and the dominion of sin, while we were slaves to our own passions and desires, while we were enemies of God and haters of God, while we were exchanging His glory for our selfish earthly pursuits, at this time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And ungodly here is not a nice term, it's a pejorative term. It's a disparaging, denigrating term. It's the same term used in Romans chapter 1 to describe the fools that exchange the glory of God. The thrust of the message is this, while we were unworthy of his love, he died for us. He didn't die because we were worth saving, but because he himself is love. Think about how uncommon it is for someone to die, even for the best of men. Only rarely and with great difficulty might someone lay down their lives for a just and righteous man, said Paul in Romans chapter 5. Perhaps, maybe, someone might die for someone they consider good, someone with whom they hold a close connection. But who dies for the dregs of society? Who dies for the worthless? Who dies for the ungodly? Who dies for their enemy? The rare heights of human love at its best might motivate someone to die for an extraordinarily important person to you. But God sent Christ, who voluntarily took on flesh, not for good or righteous people, but to seek and to save rebellious Wicked, foolish, undeserving people. God's love is far greater, far more wonderful, far more gracious, far more dependable than even the highest peaks of human love. 
God shows his love for you and I in this, that while we were sinners, meaning while we had the full ledger of our sin recorded and held against us, even then Christ died for us to make peace between God and ourselves, to bring us into relationship with him, to make us objects of his grace and mercy. God did this. That's what love is. Active care to address a need. Active forgiveness. Active sanctifying and discipling. It's a committed, purposeful, steadfast, loyal, active love. This is what is meant by the Greek word used in our text for love, agape. You've probably heard of it. There's a camp somewhere around here called agape. It's not a simple feeling, but is sacrificially devoted to the best of the one upon whom it's aimed. Now, if you've got a King James Bible with you, you will see that King James chooses to do something good with this text in 1 Corinthians 13, for example. 1 Corinthians 13 is the the love chapter, right? But you see in there, they choose to translate the word agape as charity rather than love. And why do they do that? Because they want you to know the distinction. Love is not something that we receive, per se, but it is something that is given and practiced toward others. That's how God loved us. That's how we love our neighbor. It's a determined love. It's resolved to put the welfare and betterment of others above our own. It is a devoted love intent upon living for the one upon whom it rests. So with all of this in mind, let's turn to this morning's text and hear this interaction between our Lord and this lawyer in order to understand it in context, to apply it to our own lives, to love the Lord and to love our neighbor. Look at verse 34 again. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So contextually, you know that the religious leaders are now bringing to Jesus questions in an, in an attempt to entangle him in his words. Because Jesus spoke three consecutive parables, and they heard these parables and recognized that Jesus was rebuking them and chastising them in those parables. And so they try, they respond by trying to entangle Jesus so they can bring him or, uh, to the authorities, they can charge him with something, or they can make him look like a fool in the eyes of the crowds. The Pharisees came with the question about taxes, a politically charged question. The Sadducees came with the question about marriage. Does this woman married seven men? Which one of the men are going to be her husband when they get into heaven? Which is a theological conundrum seeking to deny a central cardinal doctrine of the church. But look what Matthew says happened. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Matthew chooses a word here that means put a muzzle on. The picture is that of putting a fitted device on an animal's snout to keep their mouths from opening. In other words, the Sadducees were speechless and silenced by Jesus' answer. And so the Pharisees here find themselves in a, in a small dilemma, right? On the one hand, the question that the Sadducees had asked was one that they kept on bringing to the Pharisees who believed in a resurrection, and the Pharisees kept tucking their tail and running because they didn't know how to answer the question. And Jesus answers the question, and one of them, according to Mark, pipes up and says, Yes, you've answered it well. And so on the one hand, you can imagine, right, all the Pharisees around them saying, Hey, we don't like this guy. Come on, stop, stop with that. 
Okay, we got the answer. He, they're, they're muzzled. Now we can know how to answer the question in the future. So they got the answer to the question, and so they're pretty happy about that. But on the other hand, they're also angered by the increase of Christ's reputation and influence with the crowds who, verse 33 tells us, were astonished by his teaching. And so the, the Pharisees gathered together. See that in verse 34. They gathered together to consult with each other, to regroup for yet another round of questions. I mean, they can't let the crowds think that Jesus is smarter than them or more able than they are. This would ruin their credibility. So they gathered together. Now, Peter and John, after the ascension of Jesus, speak about these gatherings. They speak about them in Acts chapter 4 as fulfillments of Psalm chapter 2, one of my favorite psalms. Listen to what uh, Peter and John said in Acts 4, 24 to 26, or the church said. After Peter and John were released from prison, the church lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. See the phrase? Gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. That's what's happening here in verse 34. The psalmist declared that this very thing would happen. But what came out of this gathering? Verse 35 tells us, one of them, a lawyer, you see that? A lawyer asked him a question to test him. Now this is interesting because Mark's gospel speaks positively of this man. Listen to what Mark says. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, well, asked him, this man seems to be a little bit different than the rest of the Pharisees. Always remember, because as we move into chapter 23 next, it's going to be devastating woes pronounced against the Pharisees. But always remember that while the majority of the Pharisees did, in fact, hate Jesus, not all of them did. Some will respect him openly at his death, like Nicodemus, for example. And after his ascension, some will even turn to him in faith upon hearing the proclamation of the gospel from the apostles. And so this man, hearing Christ's answers to the questions posed to him, brings a question himself. Matthew calls the man a lawyer. You see that? A lawyer. The word there means a legal scholar, one whose mind was a cut above everybody else's. One who was extremely well-versed in the Mosaic law. This is one of the bright doctrinal and theological lights among the Pharisees. And so he inquires. He asks Jesus a question to test him. That word there means to inquire, to test and search more fully into the knowledge of Christ in regard to Scripture. And if you go back to Mark, when he, Jesus answers the question, Mark presents the man as thoroughly impressed by the answer, saying, he said in Mark chapter 12, 32 and 34, you are right, teacher. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to the lawyer, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So let's not ascribe to this man yet hostile intent in bringing this inquiry to test Jesus. <coughs> but maybe, while he might have walked to Jesus with good intentions, perhaps the Pharisees had some malicious intentions of their own in the background, right? Right? 
It could be they hoped that Jesus would denounce or speak negatively about certain portions of the law, and if they did, then they could pounce. But it would seem like the intentions of this man are to, le- to seriously see what Jesus would say about this question. And what's the question? Verse 36. <clears throat> Teacher, which is the great command? The great commandment in the law. Now, the Pharisees here, they loved to argue and debate for hours about questions like this. The Pharisees remind me of students in their first year of Bible school. I don't know if you've ever met first-year Bible school students, but they love to debate about absolutely every meticulous thing that they could argue about. I remember those days myself. It's kind of fun. And it helps you to train, you know, it trains you up, you know, and then later on you're like, I'm not going to argue about those things anymore. These same Pharisees hotly debated the minutest details of the Old Testament law, and they tried to classify the Old Testament laws into what they called great and weighty laws, more important laws, and small, less weighty laws. And the Pharisees, after decades and decades and decades of debate, still had not come to any consensus on on any sort of full list about what constituted weighty and what constituted small. There was no like, here it is, a complete breakdown of the weighty laws and the small laws. They hadn't come to that conclusion because they were still debating a whole bunch of the laws, whether they fit in the weighty section or they fit in the light section. Now, they did recognize some of the easier ones, and I think we would all agree, right? You shall not murder, for example, in Exodus 20.13, carries a bit more weight than you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I think we get that. But that didn't mean the Pharisees encouraged any sort of disobedience. They didn't encourage disobedience to even the so-called lighter commands. They knew, at least intellectually as we do, that all sin, all disobedience, even in the slightest, constitutes an attempt to lift up self over, and our wills over God. And this constitutes an act of rebellion, defiance, and wickedness. But even though the Pharisees knew all of this, they still debated adultery, theft, building parapets on the roof of one's house, what's the greatest command and the most weighty and important of commands, the one upon which all others hang, and what are the other ones? The problem was that the primary command eluded them. Not because they didn't say that loving God was the most important. Some of them actually did say that. It eluded them in the sense that they were so focused on the externals, they couldn't see that they didn't actually love God. They didn't actually love their neighbor. And it is from this love that true obedience, true faithfulness springs. And so Jesus answers the lawyer's question in the hearing of the Pharisees, saying this in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now Matthew, as is his custom, chooses brevity. Christ's answer was actually a bit a wider quote of Deuteronomy as we read in Mark. Listen to what Mark said. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now the text that Jesus quotes here is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. In context, the book of Deuteronomy records God's commands to Israel as they stand at the precipice of entering into the promised land. Over and over again, the Lord reminds them how much He has loved them. He revealed to them and displayed for them his powerful, loyal love in rescuing them from harsh enslavement in Egypt. Reminding them in Deuteronomy 5.6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the hand of slavery. And again commanding them in Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This phrase, outstretched arm, means with power. For this reason, because God's love has been so showered upon you, because it has been so actively displayed for you, for this reason, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember all that the Lord is. Remember all that He has been for you. Remember the love that He has shown you. Remember that He is the one and only true God. Remember there's no confusion in God. And that all devotion is to be directed to Him alone. In other words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There is to be no mixture of devotion to the Lord and the idolatrous worship of the so-called gods of the nations. There is to be a careful and diligent dedication to the Lord, keeping all of His statutes and His commandments, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Israel, you are to reveal your love for the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, 17, by diligently keeping the commandments by teaching them diligently to your children, by talking of the commandments when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. All of these texts are what surround the great commandment. And can you see, based on the context of Deuteronomy, what is being called for? A pure, devoted, dedicated, singular commitment to the Lord. A wholehearted pleasure in and affection for the Lord who has delivered us, who has delivered you and I from an even greater enslavement than that which the Hebrews were delivered from. We were delivered from the enslaving power of sin. Sin that would bring about our eternal death. The wages of sin is death. We were saved from that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This phrase here, you shall love the Lord your God, has what we call an imperatival force, meaning it is a command. It's something that the Lord calls upon us to obey. And I want you to notice too, what is it? Who is it that the Lord calls us to love? himself. You are called to love him for who he is, as he is, the God who is perfect in holiness and perfect in justice and in goodness and in power and in grace and in mercy and in sovereignty and all the rest. We are called to love him for him. 
the perfect one, the fountain and the standard for all that is good and wonderful. And how are we to love our all-glorious Lord of heaven and earth? There is a phrase repeated three times in these verses. Do you see it? With all. With all. When you see something three times in such short order, it's because the Lord really wants you to get this. We love God with all. Meaning it's not a half-hearted love. It's not a love like that practiced by ancient Israel. You remember, ancient Israel were called to love the Lord, but they consistently hedged their bets by trying to serve both the Lord and the idols of the nations. For us today, it might be us trying to take on the benefits of serving Christ, but trying also to be loved by the world. This is, always leads to sin and always leads to rebellion. Listen, if you think that you can be loved by the world and wholeheartedly love and serve the Lord God, then you think that you can figure out something that not even Jesus himself could figure out. How to serve the Father wholeheartedly and have the world love you at the same time. These two things are mutually exclusive. Love for God equals hatred by the world. And to be a friend of the world, according to James 4, verse 4, is to be an enemy of God. It's to try and serve God in much the same way that the Israelites did. The love the Lord calls for is a comprehensive love. It is a love that demands the entirety of your life and person. And I have no doubt that as you listen to this, the enemy is going to try to come to you and say, doesn't that sound like a drudgery? Have you thought about the cost of serving the Lord with such a determined and focused love? What is your life going to look like? It's going to be so boring. He's going to try to turn your eyes to the lights and the action and the enjoyments of the world so that you want to do anything other than love God. You want to do anything other than read your Bible. You want to do anything other than pray because there's so many other things you could be doing with your time. What the enemy won't tell you, that, uh, though, is what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 2. All that is in the world, the desires of the uh, flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, all the flashiness of the world that is drawing your eyes away from the Lord, that the enemy is pointing you towards, will one day be eliminated because it does not lead to your ultimate delight and joy. The enemy is never going to tell you this. But serving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, does not rob you of joy, it does not minimize your joy, but it is instead the very pathway to your joy. Serving God with all is what promotes and inflames and increases your joy in this world. The Lord here, in calling you to love Him with your all, is inviting you to live the very life that most improves and advances your joy. It's not a command given by God because He is some sort of cosmic killjoy. It's not a command that He gives to us because He wants to take something from you. It's not a command that we ought to obey begrudgingly with thoughts of, oh boy, would I rather be doing other things that make me really happy. 
No, this is our generous and loving God who is the fountain of all joy, calling you to participate in and to drink from that fountain of joy. And to do so with all of your heart, meaning the very core of your being, the very center of your person, with all of your convictions and all of your commitments. The very center. With all of your soul, that means that immaterial part of you that governs your will and your resolve and your conscience and your emotions. And with all of your mind, meaning all of your mental powers and capacities, your thoughts, your attitudes, your beliefs, your intellect, your determinations, all three of these together speak to loving God with the totality of your life. <clears throat> the most excellent 17th century pastor and preacher, Jeremiah Burroughs, in one of my favorite books of all time, it's one of my top five, you should read it, it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, spoke about our hearts, describing them as though they were a channel filled with pipe, a channel of pipes that must be stopped up and redirected so that the full stream of affection runs to the Lord. He's speaking to Christians wondering why their external comforts have been taken, but hear the words. These words have been a great source of encouragement and exhortation to me. Listen to Burroughs, and I quote, If you have God, you may be contented with Him alone. And it may be that is the reason why your outward comforts are being taken from you, that God may be all in all to you. It may be that while you had these things, they shared with God in your affection. A great part of the stream of your affection ran that way. God would have the full stream run to Him now. You know, again, remember this is in the 1600s, you know that when a man has water coming to his house through several pipes and he finds insufficient water comes to his wash house or washroom, he will stop the other pipes so that he may have all the water come to where he wants it. Perhaps then God had a stream of your affection running to him when you enjoyed the things of the world, but a great deal was allowed to escape to the creature. A great deal of your affections actually run waste. Now the Lord would not have the affections of his children run waste. Your affections are precious, and God would not have them run waste. Therefore, he cuts off your other pipes that your heart might flow wholly to him. I love that picture. To love God is for you to labor, to stop up all the flows of affections that shoot out into the many pipes, into many different places in the world so that the tap of love for God pours out every last drop of your affection in His direction. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. This is the preeminent commandment, the most prominent, the one that ranks above all the others and upon which all others depend. Without this love, all of our outward obediences are as nothing, even worse than nothing. They are an affront to God. Why? Because usually when we perform external works, we think to ourselves that these duties will win God's affection for us. These duties will make us righteous in the eyes of God. Or some will say, you can put God in your debt by your good deeds. All of these concepts, Paul, in the, his letter to the Galatians, calls anathema or cursed. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. And Jesus continued, the second is like it. 
The second weighty command upon which all others hang and depend is similar. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there are a number of biblical texts that people like to mangle and mutilate and disfigure beyond all recognition, and this is one of them. People have taken this verse and used it to promote all sorts of wicked sinfulness in the name of love. Because for them, love means letting me do what I want to do, letting me be who I want to be. And I've still heard even others take this verse and use it to promote some sort of selfish, me-first self-love. I've heard it said, you've heard it said, I've mentioned this before, some people will say things like, how can, you first love, how can you love others if you don't first love yourself? Can I just say, whenever I hear that, I want to flip over some tables. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself in context? Well, Jesus here is quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is the culmination of a number of laws regarding the treatment of your fellow Jew in the land of Israel. I want you to hear the command in context, and as you do, I want you to ask yourself where the ideas of leaving people, giving people permission to sin in the name of love, or learning to love yourself are found in the Levitical context. All right? Starts in verse 9 of Leviticus chapter 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord. In other words, leave some of the bounty of your field to supply the hardworking poor along in the land, along with the sojourner. Sojourners were the foreigners that lived in the land. Sojourners in the land of Israel were commanded to submit themselves to the law of the Lord during their sojourn, and these were to be cared for and supplied for by the people. Moses goes on, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do justice No injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you see any of those concepts that we import into that command today in the Levitical context? To love neighbor as ourself is to actively give to them the love we hope that others would give to us. In the same way that you hope to be cared for if you fall on difficult times, take care of others. In the same way that you don't want to be stolen from, Don't steal from others. In the same way that you would desire justice in court, you keep from being unjust. In the same way that you wouldn't want someone to slander you, but you would want them instead to protect your reputation, so you do the same thing. And notice this. He says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with him. 
While the world and even many Christians might not like this frank reasoning with your brother, this is central to loving your neighbor as yourself. Because in what way do you and I show the greatest love for neighbor? By seeking their holiness. By rebuking and exhorting and encouraging our brothers to repentance and relationship with the Lord. And in so doing, the Apostle Paul says, we work with our fellow believer for their joy. 2 Corinthians 1.24 Serving, remembering, obeying, loving the Lord is the great aim of the Christian. And in the same way that we pursue relationship with God as our pinnacle goal, so we work with our brothers and sisters in Christ to help them towards the same goal. This is what is meant by loving your neighbor. It's not indulging yourself in the name of self-love, nor is it following your heart or telling others to follow their hearts because that will somehow, some way, make you happy. That's the exact opposite of love for your neighbor. Listen to what the Lord said in Numbers 15. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And listen, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which are inc- you are inclined to whore after, so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You see, the command of the Lord here is to obey Him, not to whore after your own inclinations, passions, and desires when it leads you in the direction of the world, especially. The Lord Jesus Christ said as much to the twelve when he described the life of discipleship as this, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. This is true self-love. Dying to self and living for Jesus is true self-love. And we, in the same way that we love ourselves in this way, we are to love our fellow brothers and sisters in promoting their dying to self and living for Christ. Nowhere does Jesus describe love as following the course of our own flesh or encouraging others to do the same. To love your neighbor as yourself is the exact opposite. True love is encouraging holiness and obedience to the Lord, to encourage them in maturity of faith. I want you to hear how the preachers of old described and explained this. Thomas Watson once wrote, Love to God is the best self-love. It is, the self-love, it is self-love to get the soul saved. By loving God, we forward our own salvation, and He is sure to dwell in heaven that has God dwelling in His heart. So that to love God is the truest self-love. He that does not love God does not love himself. And by loving the world, you love that which will endanger you. So if loving self means loving God first and foremost, then to love others as we love ourselves is to help them love God first and foremost as well. And when you are being loved in this way by a brother or sister, hear what the old pastor George Swinnick wrote, Be not angry when a prophet smites thee in the name of the Lord. Believe it. He that hates your sins most loves you best. He that hates your sins most loves you best. That's counter-cultural, isn't it? He also wrote, If I'm fearful to tell men of their sins, I'm a murderer of their souls. And what could be more anti-love than that? 
Loving our neighbor, our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way is the clearest sign that you have actually committed to following the first command to love the Lord your God with all. The Apostle Paul made this clear, for example, in Ephesians 4. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And the Apostle John also made it clear in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Christ, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we loved God first and foremost and loved our neighbors in this way, we wouldn't need the law. But we do need it now because we need it to guide us who are not yet perfected in the pathways of such love. But if we understood these commandments and lived them out, we wouldn't ever do anything other than that which honors God and promotes what's best for our neighbor as they grow up in their most holy faith. The commands upon which all others hang, upon which all others depend, the commands that fulfill the entirety of the law have been set down for each and every one of us. Saint, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And may the Lord be honored as we obey these great commandments and as you find joy both in your obedience to and your loving exhortations of and your being exhorted by the fellow believers who are walking with you on this path. In closing, let's hear the Apostle John's summary of this entire subject. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love God one another. Amen. Father, we praise you and we honor you and we thank you. We thank you for boiling down the entirety of the Old Testament into these two laws upon which it all depends, upon which everything hangs. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring, that you would transform us and work in us Sanctify us so that we might increasingly love you with all. And not only that, but that we might increasingly love our neighbor as ourself. Love our neighbor by proclaiming the gospel to them in hopes that they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And if it's a brother in, or sister in the Lord, exhorting them as needed, encouraging as needed, rebuking as needed, because we love them enough to see them grow up into increased maturity in Christ. Father, may we always seek our joy in loving you and our fellow believers' joy in having and helping them love you also. Because you are so worth it. You are so wonderful. You are so amazing. And we give you praise and honor and glory. 
in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.